0: One Hope Church. We're thankful for each one that's here this morning as we uh, continue our studies in the book of Luke, the Gospel. According to Luke, the uh, uh, section we're doing today will be uh, the uh, 22nd of Luke, verse 63, through the 23rd of Luke, verse 25, and we'll be using the uh, New King James Version. Uh, pretty much throughout the, uh, the discussion and study uh, this morning, uh, this uh, section has to do with the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know uh, from the Gospels there were six uh, trials of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll be looking at that this morning. Let's uh, pray again as we begin. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to offer our praise and worship in song and in prayer. We, we give you thanks, Father, that you are indeed worthy and that your Son, the Lamb of God, is worthy of all our praise in each of our lives. Thank you for the day. Thank you for each one that's here. Bless, we pray, Lord, those that couldn't make it help the sick to get well, and uh, give journeying mercies for those that are traveling. uh, We just thank you for each one that is a part of our community, and uh, we praise you for uh, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that uh, that might be known today. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, we mentioned there were six trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be touching on some uh, things that are uh, of a historic nature today. Uh, and we'll also have uh, some very weighty spiritual truths to consider. And uh, we will uh, uh, try to do that as the Lord leads. Now, the summary of the six trials uh, is important to keep in our minds. There were uh, six phases of these trials. There, were the, there, were the, there was the Jewish trial, which had three stages, and then there was the Roman trial, which had three stages. So That makes it a little easy to remember the six. Now, <clears throat> in the Jewish trial, the first set of uh, trials... There was the preliminary examination by the ex-high priest, Annas. Secondly, came the informal night trial of the Sanhedrin. And thirdly, the final formal trial of the Sanhedrin after dawn. Now, you remember previously, Jesus had been arrested by night and taken to the ex-high priest's house and there you have that first Jewish trial beginning before Annas. This trial is not recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but it is recorded in John chapter 18. So uh, that's some further study that you might make. But look at John 18:12. It says, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Joseph Caiaphas was legally the high priest, but the exile priest, his father-in-law, Annas, still wielded a lot of power in Israel at that time. Then uh, later that night, you have the second Jewish uh, trial before Caiaphas taking place. It says in John again, uh, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So you have then the start of the informal night trial by the Sanhedrin. We'll read in Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 23 to 65. It says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. So let's look at this in in some more detail. you see Jesus being mocked and beaten. The, the men who held Jesus mocked and beat him, it says. Now, when they mocked him, they were really uh, treating him with great ridicule and contempt. And they beat him. It says they struck him with the palms of their hands in Matthew. The, the conduct of these men was totally illegal. Uh, This group of men included officers of the temple, which was supposed to be the holy place, the righteous place. And here they are uh, doing these evil, illegal deeds to Jesus. The scripture says that Jesus endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. And certainly this is one of those occasions where he was... uh, uh, abused by sinners. In verse 64, it says, Having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Now, when it says uh, they blindfolded him and struck him on the face, Matthew adds, they spit in his face. They asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? The idea of prophecy was both under, misunderstood by these people and perverted by them to this kind of situation which we have uh, before us. And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. You know, evil men delight to, to hurt the Lord Jesus Christ. It was true then, it's true today in the sense that they delight to hurt his people and his cause. And it says they added insults to their violence. That brings us to the last Jewish trial, the formal trial before the Sanhedrin, which was after uh, dawn. Let's read from verse uh, 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now let's look at this a little more closely in detail. It says, as soon as it was day. Now, this reminds us that the Sanhedrin hated Jesus so much that they violated their own legal procedure by having that nighttime trial which was contrary uh, to Jewish law. The Jewish law forbade uh, night trials and specified that capital cases must have at least two trials a day apart. A verdict of condemnation was not to be given until the day after the trial. This comes from the Jewish Mishnah Sanhedrin one. The daybreak session was an effort to bring a semblance of legality to this very sordid procedure that was going on. The elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, that is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 or 72 elders and and teachers of Israel. It was allowed by Rome to pass judgment on religious and civil matters, but could not inflict capital punishment. It says in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. Let's just take a moment to think about what it meant to be the Christ, what that involved the 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 christ the messiah the anointed one was the one promised in the old testament and <laughs> this title christ or anointed or messiah uh signified both the deity and the humanity of the one to whom it belonged the title indicated the one who would come to die for sins such as in Isaiah 53 and other passages and the one who would come to reign upon the earth as many of the Old Testament scriptures show. So they say, tell us, are you the Christ? And he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. They had already prejudged Jesus. They had come to their conclusions They were not willing to believe. And it's so important to be willing to believe. If you're listening to my voice and you uh, are willing to believe, there is hope for you. There is hope that you will come to that place of belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only way to heaven, your only Savior. Now, it says also that if I ask, also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. In other words, on more than one occasion, Jesus had asked questions of these leaders that were designed to bring out the true meaning of who the Messiah was, and they had refused to uh, reply to him. So right now, these men were not going to hear him uh, either and so uh, they would not let him go either because they had made up their minds about what they planned to do with Jesus and they were going to go through with it. Jesus said, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God hereafter. In other words it's a future event that will occur and a change was going to take place the one who stood in front of them in this state of humiliation was in fact going to be seated one day in the ultimate place of power. And that would be a tremendous uh, reversal from what we see uh, here in this uh, section. Now, as we go on, it says that he would sit at the right hand of the power of God. And who would sit there? It would be the Son of Man. Let's just think about that. We thought about the Christ, what it meant to be the Christ. Here we have the thought of the Son of Man. Again, a Messianic title that referenced both Christ's deity and humanity. Uh, His humanity and his sovereignty in particular. It is is something that touches his deity, but it's mainly about his humanity and his sovereignty. David said in Psalm 110 in verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So uh, the Messiah is going to sit at the right hand of the God of, uh, of the universe and as uh, as a true uh, man he will be invested with ultimate sovereignty. Uh, da- Daniel called uh, uh, him this as well uh, in, in a sense. Da- Daniel looked into the future and saw one coming before the ancient of days. We read about this in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, remember in Luke 21, as we were going through that passage, Jesus referenced this section of Daniel to himself. He referenced it to the future a return that he would make to the earth. He says in verse 27, Then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power, And great glory. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? What is meant by that title? We might ask ourselves that. Uh, Let's just take a moment to consider. We've looked at the, the Christ and the Son of Man. Well, here's the term, the Son of God. Now, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, the unique Son of God. Lesser sons of God include the nation of Israel, the good angels, and believers in Jesus. But this unique son of God, Jesus, has all the characteristics of his father. We know that sons bear their likenesses of their father, the characteristics of their father. Well, this unique son has all the characteristics of his father, all the attributes of his father and is in fact equal to God his Father. So all of this fits perfectly into the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity. The one living God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they asked him, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. Let's just consider that thought for a moment. Earlier in the previous trial, the night trial, Jesus was put under oath by the high priest Caiaphas. False witnesses accused him. They said uh, many things against him. And of course, they were false witnesses. They couldn't agree. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. That's from Matthew 26, 63. 62 uh, uh, or Mark 14, 62 says, Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he has clearly affirmed that he is the Son of God, and this incites his enemies against him. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And they said uh, these things about him. Now his own testimony was clear and sufficient. There can be no doubt about his claim. He said, I am the Son of God under oath. And in spite of the fact that Jesus had led a perfect life through his days in Israel, his years and years, and uh, several years of teaching and preaching and healing at this point, In spite of his words of wisdom, in spite of his works of messianic power, the Sanhedrin, representing the nation, rendered a verdict of guilty. That's pretty astonishing uh, to realize the sinfulness of the human heart going that deep. Now, as we've looked at the three Jewish trials of Jesus, the three phases of the Jewish trial, we look at the Roman Uh, Trial and we see three phases in it as well. The first appearance before the Roman governor Pilate, secondly the appearance before Herod Antipas, and the final third appearance, uh, the the final appearance before Pilate is number three. So uh, let's consider these things in in more detail. This comes in chapter twenty-three beginning with verse 1. So let's read uh, verse th- 1 through 6. It says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a the king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and sa- him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Who was also in Jerusalem at that time? So Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate. It says, Then the whole multitude arose and led him to Pilate. We might ask, perhaps, who are not as familiar with these uh, historical details, we might ask ourselves, Who is Pontius Pilate? Well, he was the Roman procreator, our. (coughs) a governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. He was not liked by the Jews. He had offended them time after time. On several occasions, he nearly drove the Jews to insurrection. There was this terrible tension between them. A horrible example of Pilate offending the Jews is found in Luke 13 and 1. Where it says, there were present at that season some who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Apparently, Pilate had slain these people, had them slain as they were offering sacrifices in the temple. Wow, that would be an outrageous thing in the mind of any Jew or any right-minded person. It was the custom for the Roman procreators procurators, excuse me, to reside in Jerusalem during the great feast to preserve order. At the time of our Lord's last Passover, he was in his official residence in Herod's palace. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Now, notice that the accusations were politically, uh, political in nature. They were calculated to incriminate Jesus before a Roman court. But their falsehoods were plainly shown by the life and teachings of Jesus perverting the nation. That was one accusation. But clearly, Jesus was seeking to turn the people to the true and living God, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. But clearly, Jesus taught to give to Caesar what belonged to Caesar and to God what belonged to God. At this time, the Caesar was Tiberius. And then they said, saying that he himself is Christ the king. Well, at least they got that part right. Uh, He was no threat to Rome at this time, but he was indeed Christ the king. Then in verse 3, it says, and Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, it is as you say. Now, the English translation doesn't quite give the full force of this uh the 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 thought of you is uh paramount here. Are you the king of the Jews? Here was Jesus who had been abused all night, standing in front of him, and he's amazed that this uh this one so beaten and abused was the king of the Jews after a private interview with Jesus. Recorded in John, Pilate declared his innocence. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man, meaning that the man was not guilty of any crime. But they were the more furious. excuse me, fierce saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So this is what they're saying about Jesus as a form of accusation. Now, we get the true meaning of what Jesus was up to during these years of teaching from Acts chapter 10. He says, it says, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached how Jesus how how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the holy spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him that's the true meaning of what Jesus was about in his journeys throughout the land when Pilate heard of Galilee He asked if the man were a Galilean. And so we come to that next section where Jesus faces Herod. Let's read uh, verses 7 through 12. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him. Because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate." That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. So, as verse 7 tells us, as soon as he realized he was from Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who had been in Jerusalem at that time. Now, again, we, we need a little historical background, perhaps, that uh, might be useful. Who was Herod? Herod was not a personal name, but a family or surname. This name belonged to each one of the Herodian house mentioned in the scriptures. The Herods were all Idumeans or Edomites, the descendants of Esau the brother of Jacob slash Israel. The Herods were Idumeans by race and Jews by religion. The rulers mentioned in the New Testament ruled under Roman authority. The reference here is to Herod Antipas who ruled from AD 6 through 39. Uh, He had a very wicked father, by the way. Herod the Great, who had massacred the children of Bethlehem. So Pilate sends him to Herod. Now he's constantly looking for a way to get out of making this decision, which the Jews are, are pressing upon him. Uh, so here's a convenient out for him. He sends him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem, At that time, since Herod was nominally a Jew, he would need to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Both Herod and Pilate would proclaim Christ's innocence and then mock and torture him. Shortly, in a little bit, we'll see that evil government authority delivers Jesus to the cruel murder of the cross. And that's it. A, that's a, uh, God didn't design government to do something evil like this. But government is quite capable of doing great wickedness. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired to see him for a long time, because he had heard many things about him, and he heard, hoped to see some miracle done by him. Now, why did Herod desire to see Jesus? Perhaps he was motivated by a troubled conscience. Remember, Herod Antipas was the one who ordered the murder of John the Baptist. And so they went and cut off John's head. Now, Okay, sorry, just uh, lost my place for a moment here. Uh, Now, Herod had heard many things about him. Uh, Earlier, when he heard about the miracles of Jesus, it says in Luke 9, he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this? man about whom I hear such things. And he says, this is John the Baptist, according to Matthew. He says, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So this is the background. This troubled man has this thought in the back of his mind that he had John beheaded. And it also says that he had hoped to see some miracle done by Jesus. So when Jesus is uh, is there, he's motivated by this idle curiosity. I want to see a miracle, you know. I think there are people like that today, you know. If a person says that they can do miracles, they're going to attract a crowd because people want to see that kind of thing, and it's kind of uh, sad. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Herod had not listened to the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, and Jesus would not listen uh, or even speak to this wicked man. So when Jesus didn't say anything to Herod, it offended Herod. And so he and the chief priests and scribes uh, stood and vehemently accused him and uh, the anger of uh, Herod and those with him was vented against Jesus. Then in verse 9, 11, it says, Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. So again, wicked men gather around Jesus and pour out their uh, anger and mockery upon him. Now where did this gorgeous robe come from? Well, it might well have uh, been because you know Jesus was accused of being a king and this is part of their mockery. perhaps they used a used, uh, used a, a royal robe that had been used in the past and they put it on him and they uh, sent him back to Pilate. Imagine the Son of God going through all of this that very day it says. Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Now, perhaps in the background of this, there had been uh, a question about jurisdiction. By this event, Herod uh, probably thought that Pilate had been recognizing his authority and therefore uh, they became friends together. Now I come to the third phase, the final appearance before Pilate. Let's read about that. Verses 13 to 25 of Luke 23. Then Pilate, when he would called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for he, I sent you back to him. Uh, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man! And release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison but they delivered Jesus to their will. Now, an important thing to note as we go through this is uh, that Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. That's a really important concept. It says in verse 13, then Pilate, when he would called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, notice uh, the bigger the crowd would help their the leaders press their case against Jesus. And then he said, I find no fault in this man. Again, Jesus is declared innocent. What a tremendous theme throughout here. So in verse 15, it says, neither did Herod. Now this is a little odd. It's a a King James following, the new King James following, uh, Kind of a bad reading, I think. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It says, No, neither did Herod. In other words, Herod didn't find him guilty. For he sent him back to us. Uh, the, the better manuscripts have that. And it's the only uh, thing that makes sense in the context. So he sent him back to us. And nothing deserving of death has been done by him. In other words, the non-action of Herod shows the innocence of Jesus. And Pilate continues to proclaim the innocence of Jesus. He says, therefore, I will, therefore, chastise him and release him. Now, Pilate, always wanting to pacify the Sanhedrin, suggests uh, that he be scourged instead But in verse 17, which is, uh, there are manuscript problems here, but uh, this thought of verse 17 comes out in both Matthew and Mark. It was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. Now, the origin of this custom is unknown. But they all cried out, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. Now, we might think of several things concerning Barabbas. Uh, this request for Barabbas. There are several observations that might be made. First of all, the rulers wanted Jesus to die and could manipulate that group that was crowded around the the, uh, praetorium to demand such an outcome. Now, the, the partisans of Barabbas, his fellow conspirators and uprisers, would try to get their friend out of the death penalty. And so they would be there for that. Also, thirdly, you know, a criminal was to be released according to this custom. But nobody, nobody could seriously consider that Jesus was a criminal. And then fourthly, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. The crowd would rather have a murderer in their midst than the Messiah. And then fifthly, the crowd would rather have a well-known sinner in their midst than one who could forgive their sins. Truly uh, a remarkable request by these evil folk in this crowd. Verse 19, and who, uh, speaking of Barabbas, had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Apparently, Barabbas had been involved in an uprising against Rome, and during the commission of this was a murder. And the murder required the death penalty, not like today when, you know, you might get eight years for a murder or some craziness like that. So, uh, the death penalty was on the table for this man. And uh, still we see Pilate wishing to release Jesus. He didn't want to do uh, what he did. And uh, there was a certain side of him that, that wanted this. But the Jews cried out in this crowd, crucify him, crucify him. They really hated Jesus. No doubt about it. Then he said to them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Now, we might ask ourselves this question. Why would Pilate, who had killed so many Jews, object to killing Jesus? Well, uh, first of all, Jesus wasn't guilty of anything. Pilate was supposed to be uh, upholding the law. Pilate, too, was motivated by hatred of the Jews. What they wanted, he would take the opposite. They wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted to free him. The uh, obvious third thought would be that there was something about Jesus. There was a power inherent in his person, which gave great pause to, to Pilate. And then there was the fact that Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Now, even in the Roman view of gods and humans, this was a very scary claim. And so he didn't want anything to do with this man. And then fifthly, Pilate's wife had a dream. And as Pilate was set to render judgment, his wife, it says, sent a warning to him to have nothing to do with that righteous man and that she had suffered greatly in a dream because of him, Matthew twenty-seven nineteen. So there are five reasons there why Pilate would want to free Jesus, but he was not a good man and uh, evil prevailed. He said, I will therefore ch- chastise him and let him go. He's really suggesting, again, a final attempt to... Give him a, a chastening, a scourging to teach him a lesson, a token uh, scourging to teach him a lesson. People have died under the, the lashes with the barbs and everything that were involved in a regular uh, scourging. But he, he wants just to uh, p- pacify the Sanhedrin. But they insisted, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. In other words, these loud voices prevailed over the voices of conscience, of righteousness, and of human kindness. Uh, it's often the case, the louder they yell, the, uh, the worse things get. So people gave sentence that it, so Pilate, excuse me, gave sentence that it should be as they requested. So he caved into their demands, and he released to them the one they requested, and re- delivered Jesus to their will. So Barnabas is released, or Barabbas, excuse me, uh, Barabbas is released. And so what you have here is the one who is guilty of death, being pardoned. And the innocent one dies in his place. Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. Now, it's interesting, the name Barabbas is the Aramaic name meaning son of a father. So this son of a father finds a substitute for his crime in the Son of the Father. Wow. How interesting, how awfully instructive that is. And he delivered Jesus to their will. So, uh, the Jewish leaders had their will and their way regarding Jesus. And this sort of ends Pilate's part in the Greatest miscarriage of justice since the world began. Paradoxically, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was not only the greatest injustice done by mankind, but is also the greatest good deed done by God for mankind. Now, that's to wrap your mind around that is to understand the gospel. Jesus dies in the place of us, sinners, guilty of crimes against the Lord of the universe, the God of the universe. Jesus takes our place and dies paying the penalty of our crimes and our sins so that we might go free like Barabbas went free. Remember, someone must pay for sin. Either one pays for one's own sin forever in hell, or one takes refuge in the sinner's substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when God offers you payment for sin, we don't want to be among those who say, I'll pay for my own. No, no, we don't want to be that. And thankfully, the folks in this room have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal and individual way and have gone for refuge in the person of the sinner's substitute. But if you're hearing this message and have not yet received the pardon that God offers you, Please accept this once-for-all payment for your personal crimes against the God of the universe. Through Christ's death and resurrection, the believing sinner receives eternal forgiveness and everlasting life. And wow, that's the greatest message in the entire universe. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross taking the place of Barabbas and taking the place uh, that we deserved, the penalty that we deserved. Thank you that in those hours upon a cross the infinite Son of God could pay an infinite payment for the sins that we have committed against an infinite God. Thank you, Father, that we don't have to pay for our sins, our own sins, in hell forever. But he has paid it once and for all in his death upon the cross. And we thank you, Father, because he was the Son of God. The grave could not hold him. On the third day, he rose again, triumphant, glorified the offerer the offer of salvation to all who will believe. And we thank you as we come to this time of celebration and the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup that you will remind us again of the greatness of your love, Lord, and the greatness of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We thank you that he is alive forevermore, and through faith in him, we are alive forevermore. In his worthy and precious name, we give thanks for this cup of remembrance and bread of remembrance that is before us. In Jesus' name.